You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. Though located in the heart of the Silicon Valley, you will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival preaching from the pulpit of North Valley Baptist Church. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. All right, take your Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, please. Tonight, Hebrews chapter number 9. And I want to get uh, into the message and pray God will speak to our hearts. I've enjoyed preaching uh, to you on Wednesday nights on the presence of God. This will probably be the last one, really, on, on this thought. And tonight what I want to do is take our attention from us in the presence of God, earthly speaking, to the presence of God in eternity, or Christ in the presence of God in heaven on our behalf. And uh, um, pray with me that I can present the truth and that we can understand the truth and that lies on me that I can present it clearly. But it's a wonderful truth if you get a hold of it tonight. Look with me in Hebrews chapter number 9, and we'll read verse number 24. And really, we're going to go through the entire chapter of Hebrews chapter 9 tonight, probably. And uh, still try to get done close to on time. At Hebrews chapter number 9, verse number 24. Look what the Bible says. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God, and here's the blessing, for us. I found this out as I study, and you know this if you study your Bible, it's a deep well. And it is impossible to exhaust it. It is totally inexhaustible. And every time I go back to it, God shows me something that I'd never seen before. And it's always been there, but it's amazing. It's inexhaustible. And I want to challenge you, study your Bible and the more you study your Bible, the more in love you'll be with Christ, and the more in love you'll be with your, with your church. It just fixes everything. Amen. Tonight, maybe as you go home or tomorrow, study Exodus, what is it, Exodus 25 through Exodus 40, and then read Leviticus chapter 16, and that'll tie in with what we're going to talk about a little bit tonight. But Hebrews 9, 24, Christ in the presence of God for us. If it's possible, and I don't even know if it's appropriate to say it like this, but I hope you understand what I'm going to say. If it's possible, maybe even a greater truth than the fact that we enjoy God's presence here is the promise that Jesus has entered into God's presence and he's there on our behalf. I believe this Bible truth is such a wonderful truth that if you and I really get a hold of it, I think that really it'll change us, it'll stir us. And it's going to be hard for us to really understand it, but I'm praying God will help us tonight. When you do get it, though, it's shouting ground. I mean, it is. It's humbling ground. It's victory ground. When you and I get to understand what it means that Jesus has entered in the presence of God and he stands there for us, we understand we are so saved and so secure in our salvation that it is pitiful. The only way that you and I could ever lose our salvation is for Jesus to fail in his priesthood. And Christ is not going to fail in his priesthood. I thought about this truth. It's like a garden, and you can go to this garden. You can sow your seeds in it. You can sow your seed of hope and sow your seed of joy and sow your seed of confidence and expectation in God, and every seed you sow is going to bloom and come forth bearing much fruit. The book of Hebrews testifies to us and says, Christ has entered into the holy of holies of heaven. And even now, as we're here tonight, he's in the presence of God, and what he does there, he's doing totally for you and totally for me. Now, what we know via our natural eye and what we know from living life here on earth is not the only thing that is real. What I mean is there's a heavenly world, and that heavenly world is just as real and maybe even more so, we could say, as what we know down here. 
The songwriter told us about that. We referenced it on Sunday. Somebody did. The song said, there's a land that is fairer than day. And by faith, we can see it afar. The Father waits over the way. And here's what it says, prepare us a dwelling place there. Let us stir our soul tonight to realize that there is a there. And though I've never seen it with my eye, and though my foot has never touched down upon its streets, I can see it clearly through the promises of the Bible. And somewhere up there, beyond the sky, beyond the clouds, beyond the stars, beyond the galaxies, that there is there. Beyond the reach of satellite or spacecraft, far beyond the uh, ability of man to venture on his own, is the habitation of God. The Bible tells us it's a city that is built four square. It rises on a foundation of precious stone. It's surrounded by a wall of jasper that's adorned with gates of pure pearl. And within the confines of that city, there is a throne room. It is called the sanctuary of our God. It's the holiest of all holy places. And in that heavenly, holy of holies, our Savior has entered in there. And he stands in the presence of our heavenly Father, ministering on behalf of all of us who've been born again. One man said heaven is an unknown location with a very known inhabitant. And thank God tonight for the, the promise that Jesus stands in the presence of God for us. Here's what that does. Our Savior standing in the presence of God turns the throne of judgment into a throne of grace. It transforms the seat of justice into a seat of mercy. It appeases God's retribution and secures our reconciliation. And it takes all the accusations ever to be made against us and it blots them out forever. I'm glad tonight that Christ is in me. And I'm glad tonight that Christ is in his word. And I'm glad that via the Holy Spirit that Christ is in the world. But far beyond that and far better than that is the Bible truth that Christ stands in the presence of God for us. And tonight I want to transfer our thinking. I want us to leave off earth and think in eternity. And instead of thinking about us in the presence of God, I want us to consider that Jesus stands in the presence of God. That moment from Calvary until tonight and all throughout eternity, we have the assurance that our high priest has entered into the holy of holies of heaven and stands in the presence of God for you and I. Hebrews chapter 9 is a chapter of contrast. It contrasts shadow with substance. It contrasts type with the fulfillment of type. It takes the earthly example and then provides us with the heavenly reality. When you begin to study the chapter, the writer of the book takes us back on a journey into the Old Testament. And he takes us to the earthly tabernacle of Israel. And then he brings us forward and helps us understand the meaning represented in the tabernacle of God, which is in heaven. As he gives us the type in the Old Testament, we begin to see the truth that's provided for us in the New Testament. Now, when you look into the shadows of the earthly tabernacle, and then you look forward into the substance of the heavenly tabernacle, you begin to understand why it is in Hebrews that the writer says over and over again that the New Testament or the New Covenant is better, far better than the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. The Old Testament, Testament tabernacle was earthly. 
The New Testament tabernacle is heavenly. The Old Testament tabernacle was just shadow. The New Testament tabernacle is the reality. The Old Testament tabernacle was temporal. The New Testament tabernacle is eternal. The Old Testament tabernacle had a priest that served on behalf of his people and entered into God's presence alone. The New Testament tabernacle sees our Savior standing in the presence of God for all of us. Now tonight, consider first with me the Old Testament tabernacle. The Old Testament tabernacle is a replica of the tabernacle in heaven. In fact, God told Moses, I want you to construct the tabernacle after the pattern given to you in the mount, the pattern of the tabernacle in heaven. I thought about this as I studied. You know, God summed up all of creation with one verse and then he gave us over 15 chapters about the construction of the tabernacle. It's amazing how God gave us an overview of creation and then gave minute detail on the tabernacle. And that's because God understood the tabernacle in the Old Testament, it would lead to, or pointed to ruin. Man could never fully attain redemption through that. But that New Testament tabernacle gives us that promise of eternal redemption. Now think about it with me. In Exodus 25, God begins to instruct Moses to have Israel build him a sanctuary so he could dwell among his people. God gives Moses the dimensions. He gives Moses the materials. He instructs Moses how to approach the tabernacle. He tells him how the priests are to serve and what their duties are within the walls of the structure. Every single detail of this building, of this tabernacle, is by divine design. And it's all patterned, I said, after what exists in eternity. God's the architect. Moses is the now, Israel are the laborers in Jesus Christ is seen in every bit of the building material. Every aspect of this Old Testament tabernacle preaches a sermon of our coming New Testament redemption. Israel would camp around that tabernacle. In a large square, they would encamp surrounding the tabernacle. The tribe of Judah would camp at the gate or the entrance of the tabernacle. Outside of the camp would be a fire that burned without stop of the leftover carcasses of the, of the sacrifices. You can see it there in your mind. It really makes you think of hell and how when you're cast out into outer darkness. You enter into the tabernacle and you have to notice there's types in every bit of it. And I'll get to where I'm going in just a minute. Look at verse 1 and 2 of Hebrews chapter 9 with me. It says, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances uh, and of divine service in a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made. The first wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Now, if you were to stand on the outside and look at the tabernacle, it'd be very unattractive to those looking at it from the outside. But once you entered into the tabernacle, once you got past the altar, and once you went by the laver, and you got into that holy place of the tabernacle, you'd see the beauty of the tabernacle from the inside. The tabernacle was surrounded by walls outside the perimeter. Those walls were draped in white linen. That white linen represented the righteousness of God. It reminded the world on the outside that they were separated from God's presence because their righteousnesses were all as filthy rags and they could not enter in. You look at the tabernacle and all of the metal used speaks of something, gold and silver and brass. Gold represents deity and silver redemption and brass represents judgment. 
As you see it there on the eastern side of the tabernacle, there is a gate. There's only one way to enter into the tabernacle. You had to go through the eastern gate. That eastern gate had a tapestry that was uh, a scarlet and purple and blue. It was held up by five pillars. You understand if you know your Bible that five is the number of grace. If you're going to enter in where redemption is, you come through that one door and that one door is the grace of God. Once you enter in through that gate, the individual would first come to a brazen altar. That brazen altar is the place of sacrifice. When we enter in through that gate, we enter in through sacrifice. All incessantly, all day long, there would be a fire burning on that altar where they would offer their offerings to atone for their sin. Then you would go past the altar of sacrifice and there's a brazen laver. That brazen laver is made of shiny brass like mirrors so you can see yourself in it. And that labor was for the cleansing of the priest. Every step they took in the tabernacle because it had no floor, their feet would get dirty and every step defiled them. The picture is to enter into the presence of God first, you have to go by the altar of sacrifice salvation and then you need to go by the labor that is consecration or cleansing for service. The area outside of the tabernacle within the gate is called the court of the Gentiles. Anybody could enter that area and they could there offer their sacrifices with the priest. But then when you get inside of that outer court, you'll find the Holy of Holies. It's divided into two sections. There's an outer sanctuary and an inner sanctuary. The first sanctuary is called the holy place. Beyond that is a veil that separated the holy place from the innermost room, and the innermost room is called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. Now stay with me and listen on purpose. Inside of the holy place are three pieces of furniture. Every piece of furniture is made of pure, beaten gold. As you first step into that holy place, there on your right side is the table of showbread. On that table of showbread, a golden table, would be 12 loaves of unleavened bread. Those 12 loaves of unleavened bread were made fresh every Sabbath. On the eighth day, they discarded those 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel. But more than that, you think six and six, it represents the Word of God. There on the left, on the other side, is a lampstand. It's one candlestick with six branches coming out, three on either side. That lamp was to burn incessantly. The priest would go in and provide pure oil, olive beans, for the light in the morning, in the evening, they would trim the wick so that the light would never go out. It's interesting, the only light inside of the tabernacle, there was no light from the sun. It was only light from the candlestick. If the candlestick wasn't burning, you could not see the showbread. It wouldn't make any sense. You couldn't discern it. It's a type of the Holy Spirit of God. If the Holy Spirit of God does not illuminate the mind of an individual, he will not see the bread of life for who he is or understand the Word of God as he should. That seven prong candlestick, the seven spirits of God, Revelation chapter number one. And then right before the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, there is a golden altar of incense. On each of these pieces of furniture, on the right, the table of showbread, on the left, the golden lampstand, and then you'll find that, that the altar of incense, all of them made of pure gold, that incense 
was frankincense and then three other kinds of spices that I really don't know what they are. I was reading one commentator and he said, that's very fitting. He said, frankincense is something that is sweet and savory like the intercession of the saints. He said, but those three spices remind us that we have an intercessor that when we don't know what we ought to pray for, thank God he knows what the need is and he can carry our prayer into the throne room. Because you see, here's what would happen is they'd burn that incense. That incense would permeate that veil. No man could enter in but the high priest alone once a year. But that incense could get through all the time. And it connected earth on this side with eternity on that side. And by the way, that's what the promise of prayer does for you and I. I'm glad when we pray, we have a direct line from earth up into eternity. And we can get into the presence of God in prayer just about any time when we call upon him. What a truth that is that that Old Testament priest had three things to serve by in that holy place. He had the bread, he had the light, and he had the incense. That's what God's given us. He's given us the word of God, the Holy Spirit, and the power of prayer to serve him while we operate here on earth. It's amazing to think about the view. The view of the tabernacle on the inside is so different from the view of the tabernacle on the outside. On the outside, it would have no form or comeliness, but on the inside, there is beauty beyond compare. On the outside of the tabernacle, you'd see that outermost roof or covering of badger skin, just a drab, gray, dull thing. Just look on it. There's no beauty at all. Somebody on the outside would see that and scorn it, but you let that worshiper get on the inside of the tabernacle, and he would look wall to see there is wood overlaid with gold. There's beautiful tapestries and the white linen ceiling with the cherubims embroidered upon it. Can I say, it's far different looking at it from the inside than looking at it from the outside. It's a reminder to you and I of how the Lord is in this world. When he came, he was despised and rejected. There's nothing about him that they desired. He had no form nor comeliness. There's nothing to look upon there, but you get saved by grace and you enter into who Christ is. And can I say, he's a lot better looking from the inside than he is from the outside. Talk about an atmosphere fit for worship. You look at the tabernacle from the outside and the sinner sees a wall. The sinner sees an unattractive covering. The white wall, it says, speaks of righteousness. The covering just drab, unattractive, but on the inside, on the inside, there's beauty beyond compare. The walls of the tabernacle, I said a minute ago, are made of pure gold. Those gold, that gold is covering shit and wood that would cover it around, unpleasant to the eye, but that wood covered up by the gold. Each board set on a solid silver footer, silver speaking of redemption, bound together by gold in bars. And I'm going somewhere and giving the information for a reason. I'll get there in just a minute. After you pass that altar of incense, inside that outer room of the tabernacle, remember I said there's a table of showbread, there's a candlestick, and the altar of incense right before the veil. When you stand at that altar of incense where the golden censer was and look ahead, you'll see that veil. It's a beautiful veil. It's a veil of blue and purple and scarlet made of fine linen with cherubims on it. The veil separates. It conceals. It divides the holy place from the most holy place. Here's what it does. It separates man from the presence of God. The only way to really get to where God is is to go through that veil. Look at verse 3 and through verse 5. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot, 
that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded in the tables of the covenant. And over it, the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak. So I want you to picture it in your mind. There's a veil there. And you can go back and read in Exodus. That veil hangs from these four pillars that separates the, the priest from the presence of God. The high priest alone could enter in. And as he would pull aside that veil, he'd be stepping in to the most sacred and holy place in the world. It's patterned after the heavenly holy place. And now man is entering in to the presence of God. When you step in to this inner sanctuary, there's only uh, one piece of furniture there. It's really divided into two things, but one piece of furniture. After you pass the altar, and after you pass the laver, and after you pass the table of showbread, and after you pass the lampstand, and after you pass the altar of incense, there in that innermost place, after that, all those other pieces of furniture is the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant. It's amazing how if you think about the tabernacle furniture, how it starts in a straight line and branches out to the side and it forms a perfect cross as you make your way to the presence of God. When you enter in behind the veil, the Ark of the Covenant is there. But on top of that Ark of the Covenant is a gold mercy seat. That word mercy seat, it's an atonement. It's a bench that would hide or cover what was inside the Ark. You say, what is inside the Ark? Inside of that Ark is the law of God. If it was not for the mercy seat, God would look down in his presence and see the law that man had broken. But God in his grace in the Old Testament said, Moses, make a covering, make an atonement for that law. He said, put the mercy seat above it so that when God looked down, he saw the mercy seat and not the broken law of God. You can draw that line and see that cross, but you can see it evidenced in all the typology of this furniture. That inner room beyond the veil cannot be accessed by all of Israel, only by the high priest. And he can only go in if he goes in with blood. Verse 6 and 7, look at it with me. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God, of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, watch what it says, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. Now listen to me, all this is just type. The fulfillment is coming. In verse 8 and 10, it says, The Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet manifest. Well, as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. So here it is, every single year, every year annually, on the Day of Atonement, this high holy day, there'd be a sacrifice made. The high priest would then enter into that holy place, that holiest of all, but he wouldn't go empty-handed. He would have to take blood as he entered in. This is the day that Israel would be pardoned. Now listen to what I'm about to say. This is interesting. Before Calvary, you never find the word justified. It is always the word pardoned. After Calvary, you never find the word pardoned. It is always justified. But here on this day of atonement, the high priest takes that burnt offering for himself first, and he goes into that holiest of all with that white linen garment 
upon his body. He takes some coals off the altar, some of that incense as well, and then he'd throw the blood seven times on that mercy seat. Then he'd come back out and he'd take the goat that was cast lost, that one goat for the Lord, one goat would be the scapegoat. You know the story of the Day of Atonement. He'd take the goat that was destined to die and sacrifice that goat. He'd pray over the other one. It would carry their sins away, but he'd take the blood of that goat, go back into that holy place, sprinkle that altar seven times. After that, he'd take two rams and offer the rams as a burnt offering. And as that blood was on the mercy seat, the presence of God would come down. And when the presence of God came down, God looked down and he saw the blood applied by that priest who had entered into the presence of God for his people and he would pass over or he would overlook or he would cover Israel's sin for one more year. He did not see the broken law. He did not, when he looked down, he saw the blood applied, not the broken law within, but the blood on the outside. Here's what it meant. Israel's sin is under the blood and in response to the shedding of blood, God remitted their sin, but just for one more year. Just one more year. Now, Hebrews chapter 9 is a chapter of contrast. The first nine verses give us the Old Testament, but in verse number 10 and verse number 11, really, it begins to transition. Verse number 9 tells us that everything about, we were a minute ago, everything about the Old Testament tabernacle, all the pictures, all the type, all the construction, was something just to teach us about this New Testament truth. God is providing us with something here to teach us a lesson far greater than what they had on earth. You can read Revelation 1, Revelation 4, Revelation 8 and see this same thing in heaven. Every year the Old Testament believer that uh, lived with this earthly tabernacle was demanded to do, 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 do. But I'm glad the heavenly tabernacle testifies done, 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 done. You see, there's not a yearly repetitious contingency plan in the heavenly tabernacle. There is not a temporal priesthood uh, serving or ministering in the heavenly tabernacle, but there's a continuing priesthood that provides a mediation that never ceases between God and redeemed man. The chapter transitions, and as it transitions, there's a great statement in verse 11. I love how it starts. It says, but Christ, and from here to the end of the chapter, the writer tells us that Jesus fulfilled every aspect of the Old Testament tabernacle. He fulfilled every aspect of the Old Testament law. He satisfied every Every demand of the Old Testament sacrificial system, but Christ becoming a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. That is to say, not of this building. You look at the tabernacle, and if you don't see Jesus, you got to go back and look again. I'm not going to exhaust it, but let me touch on it, and I'll apply it, and we'll quit. In his righteousness, he's that white linen wall. In his humanity, he's that gray gopher covering or badger covering. In his, invita in his invitation, he's that one gate to God, come unto me. In the altar, he's our sacrifice. In the labor, he is our cleansing. In the showbread, he is the bread of life. In the lampstand, he's the light of the world. In the altar of incense, he is our intercessor. In the ark of the covenant, he's the power and promise of God. And in the mercy seat, he atoned for our sin. It's amazing how in that innermost chamber, the only piece of furniture is the ark of God. 
God. That's because in eternity, the glory goes to Jesus Christ and him alone. We don't sing about the preacher. We don't sing about the singer. We sing about the Savior. All praise to him who reigns above in majesty supreme. That wood that overlaid with gold pictures Christ's humanity, but then wrapped up in his deity. He's pure. The tapestry of blue tells us he's from heaven. The scarlet tells us he's our sacrifice. The purple tells us that he's royalty. And the white reminds us that he is sinless. On the ark of God, there was a crown. On the table of showbread, there's a crown. On the altar of incense, there's a crown. There's a crown for God the Father, a crown for God the Son, and a crown for God the Holy Spirit. That, that inner veil is held up by four pillars. Four pillars for four gospels. They hold forth the life of Christ for us. That veil was made of blue and scarlet and purple. That's all that Jesus is. But aren't you glad at Calvary that veil was torn to make a way for whosoever will that they may come unto the Lord. Christ is our tabernacle. It's in him alone we can meet with God. He's seen in every bit of it. The furniture, the construction, the priest, the sacrifice, the offerings, all of it. Let me say it again. What you see is not all that is. These, these pews and this city and there is a place beyond the sky that is just as real as this place. And up there, there's a mercy seat. And up there, there's an altar. And up there, there's a throne. And in verse 24, let me apply it. Here's what it says. For Christ is not entered. This will almost make a Baptist shout on Wednesday night. I know you feeble preaching, but it's, it's, it's good truth. Look what it says in verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Can I see the Bible's painting for us a picture? That's why he went through the, the, the process of the Old Testament to get us to understand the truth that is ours. Here in the New Testament, there is blood on a mercy seat that is a far greater mercy seat than the mercy seat of the tabernacle or the mercy seat of the temple. There is blood that is far better blood than the blood that was shed by goats and bulls and sheep and all those other, and there's better blood on a better altar, a million light years more. Wonderful Jesus Christ in victory stepped into the presence of God for us after Calvary and he marched into the holy of holies of heaven in the presence of God. He took that royal redeeming of blood and put it on the mercy seat and there it is tonight. Thank God the blood speaks for us. Let me three things about it. It tells us about his office. In verse 11 he said he's a high priest of good things to come. A high priest can go where others can't go. He can serve where others can't serve. He can stand where others cannot stand. He's a representative. He's an intercessor. He's a mediator. I'm glad. I don't have a priest of flesh, blood, and bone, but I've got a great high priest in heaven, Jesus Christ the righteous, a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, he had no successor. He had no predecessor. He had no mother nor father. He had no beginning and no ending. He was a Gentile king, and Abraham paid tithes unto him, and that's who my priest is tonight. That's better than any pope in Rome. That's better than any priest down the street. I'm glad Jesus is in office as our priest tonight. And then I think about his offering. Verse 22 tells us that without the shedding of blood is no remission. It's been that way since the Garden of Eden. Blood has been incessantly given for atonement. Eden, Egypt, the tabernacle, the temple. 
Hebrews 10 and verse number 1, look what it says. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers into perfect. Look at verse 3. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sin every year. And here's why, verse 4. For it is not possible. That says it's not possible. It's not possible that baptism, it's not possible that good works, it's not possible that church membership, it's not possible that going on a mission, it's not possible that just saying flippant words at an altar, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. But thank God for the truth. Look at verse 12. It says, neither of chapter 9, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. We don't have a continual sacrifice. He didn't have to die every single week at the Mass. There's not a yearly day of atonement for us, but once and once and for all, Jesus on the cross of Calvary, He became our sin offering. He died in our place as He was nailed to wood and shed His blood. That was the offering for our heavenly mercy seat. And then I think about His operation. That's verse 24. We, our text verse, He entered in to the holy place but here's the whole thing, for us. I'm glad we get to enjoy the presence of God. I'm glad that wherever I go, He's there. I thank God for that. But I tell you, none of that would mean anything if He wasn't in the presence of God for me. Jesus died on the cross, six hours on the cross. They took His body down, laid down His life for His friends. But can I say, grave time wasn't dead time for Jesus. You say, what happened when He died? The Bible says he went down into the heart of the earth. Revelation 1.18, he got the keys of death and hell. He went down there in that place called Paradise, Abraham's bosom, hell on the other side. And those Old Testament saints had been waiting for their redemption. We're there and Jesus preached unto the captives in Ephesians chapter 4. He took captivity captive and led them up to heaven with himself. And when he went up to heaven with those Old Testament saints shouting the victory, he walked into the throne room of heaven and in his hands the, the piercings of the nail and he had the blood that he shed for us on the cross of Calvary and he walked there to the throne of God and he put that blood on the mercy seat and when he did, here's what it did. Now don't get too excited about it. It sealed your pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. It knocked her down. It nailed it tight. Thank God for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. On what merit you say? On the merit of the blood. Because there's blood that speaks better things than the blood of Abel. There's better blood than the blood that was shed on the doorpost in Egypt. Jesus Christ took his blood, the blood of God, and put it on the mercy seat. Our high priest entered in. He laid down that sinless blood. And when he did, thank God, when you and I call out to him by faith, he'll save us by his grace and you're saved, sealed, secure, and set for heaven because the blood is still there on the mercy seat. And then our adversary comes in and our adversary, like he did Job, brings all the accusations against us before God the Father. And Christ lifts up a nail-scarred hand, points at a bloody mercy seat, and says, remember Calvary? What sins are you talking about? I don't remember them anymore. Gone, gone, gone. Yes, our sins are gone. Verse 11 of chapter 10 says, And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man. That's a good place to go. Whoop, right there. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, did something they couldn't do in the Old Testament tabernacle. 
There wasn't any seat. They never got to sit down because their work was never done. But after he offered his sacrifice, he sat down. And he sat down in a good spot. He sat down on the right hand of God. You know why? There's no rest until it's finished. But this verse tells us it is finished. Look at verse 13. From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Verse 19. Go down. Look. Having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh and having a high priest over the house of God, we can do this now let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water why is that? because we have a priest that entered into the holy place and put his blood on the mercy seat, the Bible calls him the mediator of a new testament Testament is not a force until the death of the testator. A testament is sealed with blood. Jesus Christ, the New Testament, he sealed it at Calvary. And he became our mediator, our golf spanner. He reached out on this side and grabbed fallen man and reached back on this side and grabbed a, a, a holy God that we transgressed against. And when he cried, it is finished, he reconciled. He pulled God and man back together, and he made a way for you and I to be right with God. I'm glad we get to enjoy God's presence down here. But that wouldn't mean anything if we didn't have the assurance that Jesus stands in his presence up there. Nothing in our hands we can bring. You're not going to get to heaven because of you, and you're not going to please God because of you. It's all Jesus and none of us. But tonight, listen, you can peel your head this evening, and if you've accepted Christ, you don't have to worry about your salvation. Because for you to lose it would mean Jesus failed as a priest. And he's not going to fail in his priesthood. The blood is still there. Thank you for listening to the audio preaching podcast from North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California, led by Pastor Jack Treber. For more information about our ministry or to find out how to get in contact with us, visit our website at nvbc.org. May God bless you as you serve Him this week.